Welcome to Plato's Projects with James Graff, where we pursue Plato's projects of developing adequate theories of the good and the true in conversation with academic philosophy, but also with academia in general. Socrates believed that no one is deprived of knowledge willingly. We all want not merely to believe, but also to know. But what is it that we seek to know? Obviously, it is the truth that we seek to know. For whatever our goals, knowledge helps us attain them. But what is knowledge? What, for that matter, is truth? For over 2,300 years, philosophy has been seeking answers to these questions. Philosophers who study these questions are called epistemologists, after the Greek word episteme, knowledge, and their philosophical discipline is epistemology. So, is it possible to answer humanity's most basic questions about the nature of knowledge and how to get it? In this first 10-episode series, I share the 10 chapters of my own book, Knowledge by Acceptance, 2nd Edition. This book presents a novel analysis of knowledge, a list of conditions that, when met, indicate that a person knows something, rather than merely believing it. The no-unacceptable-element analysis of knowledge it proposes overcomes the problems that have plagued such theories to date, known as the Gettier problems. But it goes beyond this solution to make the analysis of knowledge truly practical for everyday use by human beings, rather than merely usable within idealized thought experiments in which the truth of the matter has been predetermined. Owing to time constraints, I have used a synthesized voice, the best I have ever found, in fact, to read the text. This best voice happens to be female. In addition, I have not been able to shape the text in detail as I normally would. As a result, it will sometimes read a word incorrectly. If you hear a word that doesn't sound quite right, please imagine the word on the written page to figure out what was written. Of course, the best thing to do to truly understand everything is to buy the book, which is available on Amazon in ebook and paperback formats. More information about the book and about myself can be found on my website, jamesgraff.org, and that's graph spelled G-R-A-F. I hope you enjoy the reading. Knowledge by Acceptance, Second Edition By James Graff Copyright 2019 James Graff All Rights Reserved Chapter 6, Truth What does it mean for a belief to be true? Explaining the concept of truth as used in the traditional analysis of knowledge tack will take a bit of work, but it is well worth the effort. Humanity has been fascinated by the concept of propositional, truth for millennia, are we now ready to demystify it? As we shall see, I am convinced that we are so ready, and that we shall demystify this concept sufficiently within the present chapter. I'll begin by clarifying what sense of truth we're interested in, i.e. an absolute or a relative truth, and what it means to ask for a definition of something. With these things clarified, we'll be ready to look for a definition of truth, also called a theory of truth.
I'll start by mentioning the different alternative high-level theories of truth, and why I dismiss each of them except for correspondence theory. Then I will explore correspondence theory by starting with the best version of it I've found in the literature, namely, Alvin Goldman's descriptive success theory. I'll discuss the concepts this theory deploys, those of description, reality, and fit, to see whether these require further analysis. In the remainder of the chapter, I'll explore how to revise descriptive success theory so as to overcome a critical flaw. I will analyze the theory into its versions of the standard components of any correspondence theory to identify where descriptive success theory is going wrong. This will lead us to a revised version of the theory that overcomes the flaw, which I will posit as the correct theory of truth. 6.1 What do we mean by truth and a definition? Let's begin with a couple clarifications about the term truth and the term definition. First, we will clarify whether we're speaking of truth in an absolute or a relative sense. Right now, we are seeking to clarify the concept of truth as used in the TAC. In the TAC as in the basic view which it attempts to support, we're talking about absolute truth. We're not speaking of my truth or your truth, but rather the truth. When a proposition is true in this sense it is true for everyone, and when it is false in this sense it is false for everyone, and one's perspective has no effect on this. One's beliefs about Abraham Lincoln have no effect on the truth value, that is, the truth or falsity, of the proposition that Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. Second, I will clarify that what we're looking for is a definition of truth, not a test of truth, i.e. not a means of verifying that something is true. Asking for a definition of something is different from asking for a test for it. An example will help. Asking how to test for radon gas is different from asking for a definition of radon gas. Imagine that you pay a company to test your home's basement for radon gas. They send an inspector and you ask him how one tests for the presence of radon gas. The inspector tells you one uses the particular detecting device in his hand, and if the reading is above a certain level, it is too high. But when you ask him what radon gas is exactly, that is, when you ask him to define it, he replies that he doesn't know, he was only trained on how to use the detector. Due to an extremely busy season, the company had quickly hired many new inspectors. You complain to the testing company, and they send another inspector. When you ask her what radon gas is, she explains that it is a radioactive gas that is naturally occurring in soil and groundwater, and which in high enough concentrations becomes a significant risk factor for lung cancer. But when you ask her how to test for it she replies that she doesn't know. The company gave her a detector, but she wasn't trained on how to use it or what detected levels would be harmful. Finally, you get the company to send a third inspector who can answer both questions. Clearly, providing a definition and a test for radon gas are separable and thus distinct tasks. In the same way, providing a definition of truth is different from providing a test for truth. To answer the question, what is the definition of truth, is to provide a theory of truth. In contrast, to answer the question, how does one test for truth, is to provide a theory of evidence, a theory of justification, or a theory of truth determination. 
These are theories concerning how to determine when one should accept a proposition as true, or how to directly determine what is true. As we shall see, it shall not take long for me to provide a theory of truth, as I will provide one within the present chapter. In contrast, providing a theory of how to test for truth shall require all of Book 2 and much of Book 3 of this series. So let us now focus on finding a theory of truth, and thus a definition for the word true. 6.2 Different Approaches, Correspondence, Epistemic, Instrumentalist, Deflationist I will now discuss four general approaches to providing a theory of truth that philosophers have taken. Each can be called a theory of truth, though they are more like general approaches, since one does not get to a specific theory of truth until one creates some version of any one of them by taking specific stances on the questions each approach leaves open for debate. The approaches I am speaking of are those of correspondence, epistemic, instrumentalist, and deflationist theories of truth. I will now mention each in turn, and provide a brief glimpse into why I consider each of them to be off-track, with the exception of correspondence theory. 6.2.1 The Correspondence Theory of Truth First is the correspondence theory of truth, which is acknowledged even by its critics to be perhaps the most natural and popular. A standard version of this theory can be expressed as follows, a proposition, or sentence, statement, belief, etc., is true just in case there exists a fact or state of affairs that corresponds to it. Note that this standard version deploys an additional concept, that of a statement, requiring that I briefly address how I might define that concept. I think a statement can be defined either as a synonym for a proposition, or as a proposition that has been stated by someone similar to how a belief is a proposition that is believed by someone, or even as a synonym for a declarative sentence, depending on context. Due to this ambiguity, I will generally avoid the use of the term statement in favor of unambiguous terms like proposition and declarative sentence. But this standard version of correspondence theory has drawn much criticism from two directions. First, many have said that the theory does not illuminate truth unless it can explain its concepts of facts and correspondence. And since no account of either of these concepts has been able to withstand scrutiny, we are left with a definition that points us to mysterious concepts and thus fails to demystify anything. Second, many have complained that correspondence theory makes truth too remote, placing it beyond the reach of mere mortals. These two critiques have prompted many to develop the alternatives to the correspondence theory we will discuss, the epistemic, instrumentalist, and deflationist theories of truth. However, before we move on to those alternative theories, I would like to provide an initial response to these two critiques of correspondence theory. First, concerning its mysterious concepts, the standard version is not the only possible version of correspondence theory. If one could find alternative, non-mysterious concepts to swap into the general structure of correspondence theory, one could evade this critique. We will, in a moment, attempt to do just that. The second objection is that it makes truth too remote and unachievable for mere mortals. The idea seems to be that, with truth defined according to correspondence with an objective standard, mere mortals like you or I will often find ourselves unable to guarantee ourselves that our beliefs align with that objective standard and thus lack knowledge. But as we will see by the end of the present book, 
there is another possible strategy to making knowledge practically achievable besides redefining the concept of truth to make truth easier to attain. As such, I will not in the present chapter respond to this supposed problem with correspondence theory, i.e., that it makes truth too remote, as I do not consider it to be a problem at all. 6.2.2 The Epistemic, or Verificationist Theory of Truth The second major approach is the epistemic, or verificationist theory of truth. This approach takes the position that a proposition is true just in case there somehow exists evidence or justification for it. As we'll soon see when we discuss justification, it is proper to believe a proposition when one has strong reasons or evidence for believing it. This might inspire one to propose that we simply equate truth with such reasons or evidence, thus arriving at the epistemic theory of truth. But the epistemic theory of truth suffers from two main flaws, it makes truth relative rather than absolute, and it confuses the tasks of providing a definition of truth with that of providing a test for truth. Let us discuss each in turn. First, this theory makes truth relative as follows. It introduces a new entity into the definition of truth, besides the proposition in question, a subject person of some kind. This is because it references evidence or reasons, which require that we specify who it is that possesses this evidence or these reasons. If it is a specific real person, this makes truth relative rather than absolute, if person A's evidence indicates that P is true but person B's evidence indicates that P is false, then P is simultaneously true and false a contradiction. The only way to evade the contradiction would be to say that truth is relative to the person who possesses the evidence. Thus there could be things true for me and true for you, but nothing that is the truth. But this contradicts what we specified up front about the concept of truth as used in the tack, namely that it was absolute. But what if one were to make the person who possessed the evidence an ideal person, as part of a thought experiment. One epistemologist, William Alston, expresses such a theory thus. IJC. To say of a belief that it is true is to say that it would be justifiable in a situation in which all relevant evidence, reasons, considerations, is readily available. Goldman complains that this fails to make truth attainable for mere mortals, one of the key goals of the epistemic theorists. But as I said, I do not consider that to have been a necessary goal in the first place. More damning is Goldman's observation that this introduces a logical circularity. It seems that one cannot define the concept of justification without reference to truth, as we will soon see when we discuss justification. If one's definition of justification refers to truth, and one's definition of truth refers to justification, we have logical circularity, something must be wrong, as we thus have failed to analyze anything into more basic concepts. 6.2.3 The Instrumentalist Theory of Truth The instrumentalist or pragmatist theory of truth seeks to respond to the perceived remoteness and unattainability of truth in a different way. Instead of defining truth according to a person's evidence, it defines truth according to another easily graspable part of life, that which is useful. It is easy to see that true beliefs are very often the most useful kind of beliefs. Let us return to our earlier example of Tracy and Gabriella to illustrate this. As we said then, 
Tracy believes the proposition that the capital of Mexico is Mexico City. Let us imagine that Tracy is an artist, a painter. Three years ago a wealthy Californian art collector offered her $1 million to paint all the national capital buildings of North and South America, as long as they were completed within three years. He paid her $100,000 up front, with the remainder to be paid only if she completed all the paintings by the three-year deadline. Since then she has completed her paintings in every country except for Mexico. She is in the airport in Washington, D.C. It is first thing in the morning, and her deadline is now tomorrow, so she only has time to fly to one city and quickly paint the Capitol building, and then fly to Los Angeles to deliver them before the deadline. If her belief that the capital city of Mexico is Mexico City is true, then she will indeed find the Mexican Capitol building there. If it is false, she won't find it there and will miss her deadline, forfeiting $900,000. Having a true belief would certainly be useful to her. The instrumentalist theory of truth notices situations like this and thus tries to define truth by this idea of the usefulness of a belief. Here is a suggested initial formulation of the instrumentalist theory of truth, inspired by articulations of the theory by the philosopher William James. I. 1. A proposition is true if and only if it is useful to believe it, that is, useful to the prospective believer. But there are three key objections to such an articulation of instrumentalism. First, there are situations in which a false belief can be useful. This can include false but flattering beliefs about oneself that help one to persevere through life's challenges. Second, there are situations in which a true belief can be harmful to one's well-being or interests. Imagine a man who is perched on a bridge, threatening to jump to his death. If at this moment, he learns a painful truth about what someone else thinks of him, this truth would not only fail to be useful, it could be disastrous. The third objection to instrumentalism is the same one I discussed for the epistemic theory, it is either self-contradictory, or it leads to relativism about truth. Like epistemic theory, it introduces a person into the definition of truth, not present in correspondence theory. In fact, it introduces two persons. For as soon as one says that truth is useful, one must answer the question, to whom is the belief useful, and who is it that believes the proposition? Version I-1 above stipulates that the answer to both questions must be the same person, the belief must be useful to the very same person who believes it. But believing a given proposition can be useful for one person and harmful for another. For example, at the start of an Olympic 100-meter race, the belief that Usain Bolt will win the race may be useful to Usain Bolt, and thus judged by I, one to be true but also harmful to all the other competitors, and thus judged by I, one to be false. To avoid this contradiction, one could go relativist about truth. But as we said concerning the epistemic theory, that is unacceptable here, as we're only interested now in defining the truth in the sense used in the tack, which is an absolutist sense of the word. One might then attempt to evade this relativism by generalizing the definition, so that it applies to everyone. Here is Goldman's attempt to articulate such a theory. I too. P is true if and only if everyone's believing P would be beneficial for all concerned. 
Unfortunately, this definition fails because we can easily come up with a counterexample. Inspired by an example Goldman cites, we could notice that the proposition, it is possible to create an atomic bomb, is true, but one could easily say that it would be beneficial for all concerned if none of them believed it. Inspired by the abstract version we finished on for the epistemic theory, I would like to add that we could attempt to go completely abstract with the instrumentalist theory as well. The goal would be to evade the objections above. I3. P is true if and only if believing P would be useful for an ideal agent. The abstract with the instrumentalist theory as well. The goal would be to evade the objections above. Of course, this prompts the question, how do we define this ideal agent? Perhaps we could specify this was a person with an infinite lifespan, who is only interested in her own infinitely long-term interests, and for whom false beliefs always come back to harm her in the long run, and for whom any short-term harms caused by true beliefs are more than compensated for by the long-term benefits of having faced those challenging truths. We would be making these stipulations in the attempt to wash out all situations in which inaccurate beliefs are useful or accurate beliefs are harmful. But the only way to articulate such a strict set of conditions would be by making reference to the concept of truth itself, the very thing I-3 is supposed to be defining. We can see an example of this in my words just above, when I said, for whom false beliefs always come back to harm her. Falsity is just the opposite of truth, and so we are building the concept of truth into the definition. The result is a logical circularity, and thus the definition fails. So it seems that no version of the instrumentalist theory of truth is workable. 6.2. For the deflationist theory of truth. There is in fact one other approach analyzed by Goldman, the deflationist theory of truth. More precisely, this is a family of theories, and Goldman discusses three types of deflationism. One can get a taste for deflationism with an early version, redundancy theory, as exemplified by the following articulation. Dr. 1. It is true that Caesar was murdered means no more than that Caesar was murdered. I could also put this in formula form. Dr. 2. The assertion of it is true that P, and the assertion of P, have the same meaning, i.e. the same content. So redundancy theory attempts to show that the word true is redundant, as it can be removed so as to simply assert the sentence about which the word true seems at first glance to be declaring something. Deflationism says that the word true in fact declares nothing, but rather simply redundantly points to the speaker's assertion of the sentence in question. Goldman then attempts to generalize about the essence of all forms of deflationism. He says, more generally, deflationism says that true mainly functions as a convenient linguistic device, rather than expressing a deep metaphysical relation between statements and the world. Thus, deflationism tries to deflate the concept of truth into a convenient tool within language that is not saying anything substantial, not adding any content. There are many versions of deflationist theory, and explaining them all would require a great deal of text, as it did for Goldman. In the end, Goldman concluded he had identified fatal flaws in all the versions of deflationism he analyzed, as he did for all the theories of truth except for correspondence theory. 
For my purposes, it will be enough to point out one key problem with all deflationist theories. But first, I will point out a key flaw with the one specific version of deflationism we discussed above, redundancy theory. Redundancy theory attempts to deflate the concept of truth by stating that to say that a sentence is true is simply to assert the sentence. But this merely pushes back a step the task of explaining the truth property. Deflationism states that instead of declaring anything about the sentence, it is true merely points to the fact that the speaker asserts the sentence, or, more precisely, the proposition the sentence expresses. But this fails to notice that we must now explain what it means to assert a sentence, as well as similar attitude-related actions such as to doubt it or disbelieve it. We have not explained away the word true. Instead, we have merely built the meaning of the word true into the concept of assertion, leaving the concept of assertion, and similar concepts, mysterious. To see that we still have to explain the concept of assertion, notice that the assertion of a sentence is not the same as the sentence itself. It is not the case that every time a sentence is articulated it is asserted. For example, John said, Vatican City is in Italy, but Claire doubts this. In this compound sentence, this stands in for the sentence, Vatican City is in Italy. Claire is clearly not asserting this sentence, since she doubts it. So, we still have to explain the meaning of these different attitude-based performances, of asserting and doubting, and the same applies to other attitudes like disbelieving. As I said, redundancy theory has merely pushed back the task of explaining the meaning of the word, true, into that of explaining the meaning of the verb, to assert. And perhaps one cannot explain what it means to assert a sentence, or the proposition it expresses, except by way of personally declaring about it that it is true, that it possesses the truth property. More generally, I would say that the key flaw with all forms of deflationism is that they lack what we will soon call a truth-maker, something independent of the sentence or proposition itself that can make it true or false. Because of this, deflationism cannot be absolutist about truth. Deflationism by deflating the notion that truth ascribes a property to a sentence or proposition, removes the possibility that there is any sense to be made of the notion that a sentence or proposition could be true for everyone or false for everyone, i.e. from an absolute perspective. All that remains is the sentence itself in the context in which it was written or uttered, without any relation between it and anything such as reality that could make it true or false for everyone. For example, all that redundancy theory leaves standing is each individual's attitude toward the sentence or proposition. If that individual is currently asserting the proposition, then it is true relative to her current perspective. And if her brother is currently asserting the opposite, then the opposite is also true relative to his current perspective. Since deflationism can only be relativist about truth, it is incompatible with our project in this book series. Our project begins by trying to develop a theory of knowledge, and thus a theory of truth, that is compatible with the basic view of knowledge. Since the basic view's third thesis, BV3, states that truth and knowledge are absolute, deflationism cannot be the theory of truth we are currently looking for. Beyond this, I will not discuss deflationism. If you are interested in exploring the various versions of deflationism, I encourage you to turn to Goldman's excellent analysis. With that said, 
I am now ready to return to a version of the correspondence theory of truth, in pursuit of the version I will in the end advocate. 6.3 The Descriptive Success Theory of Truth For an overall definition of truth, we begin with the best theory I have found, which is of the correspondence theory type. The specific theory I am speaking of is from Alvin Goldman, a prominent epistemologist. In his 1999 book, Knowledge in a Social World, Goldman takes the position that for a proposition to be true it must be successful at describing reality. Thus, he calls his formulation of the correspondence theory the descriptive success, abbreviated DS theory. Here is Goldman's articulation of it. DS An item X, a proposition, a sentence, a belief, etc., is true if and only if X is descriptively successful, that is, X purports to describe reality and its content fits reality. Note that in this definition, the term content is synonymous with the word meaning. As Goldman himself admits, this is not a complete theory, but rather a sketch of a theory that will require further clarification about the concepts it deploys, namely, description, fit, and reality. This is not a problem, as I'll explain. Unfortunately, Goldman's theory also has flaws that must be resolved. I will begin by discussing the three concepts that require further elaboration, description, fit, and reality. Next, I will lay groundwork for explaining what is wrong with DS by discussing the general structure of all correspondence theories, which includes three components, a truth-bearer, a truth-maker, and a correspondence-like relation between the two. Then I will address the flaws with DS, first concerning its truth-bearers, then concerning its truth-makers. Then I will conclude by proposing a revised version of DS that overcomes these problems. Let us begin. 6.3.1 Questions about the concepts, description, fit, and reality. The theory DS provokes three questions about the concepts it deploys. First, what does it mean to describe something? Second, what does it mean for a proposition to fit reality? Third, what do we mean by reality? Answering these questions will ensure we comprehend the key concepts DS deploys. 6.3.1.1 Description First, what does Goldman mean by the word describe in this definition, in which a sentence can describe reality? Since DS is a theory of propositional truth, we might wonder whether we can harmonize this theory of propositional truth with the definition of propositions we provided earlier, which deployed a similar-sounding concept, declaration. We said earlier that a proposition is the meaning of a declarative sentence. Are descriptive sentences and declarative sentences one and the same thing? If so, then we will have elucidated the concept of description as used in DS in terms of this other concept, declaration, which we are already familiar with, and which I believe to be on solid philosophical ground, based on the rigorous examination the concept of propositions has received in the philosophical literature, and the fact that my definition seems to withstand scrutiny in the context of this conversation. Declarative sentences declare something about reality. What about sentences that are descriptions? Since I have not found any philosophical discussion of this usage of the term description, as applied to an entire sentence, I will here attempt my own account of it. 
I will argue that descriptive and declarative sentences are indeed one and the same thing, enabling us to directly connect Goldman's DS theory of propositional truth with our earlier definition of propositions. Let's begin with a definition of the word describe. The only definition provided by the Oxford English Dictionary that is applicable is as follows. Describe, give an account in words of someone or something, including all the relevant characteristics, qualities, or events. Example, the police said the man was described as white, six-foot tall, with mousy, cropped hair. And the same dictionary entry provides the following as the origin, i.e. the etymology, of the word describe. Late Middle English, from Latin describery, from de down plus scribery right. Thus, according to the etymology of the word, to describe something is to write it down, which matches exactly with the definition provided, according to which to describe something is to give an account of it in words. It seems to me that the only way that a sentence can be the writing down of reality is by declaring something about reality. Thus, it is only declarative sentences that can be descriptions, and the only sentences that can be descriptions of reality are those that declare something about reality. Thus the concepts of a declarative sentence and a descriptive sentence refer to an identical set of objects, and we can use them interchangeably. Absent knowledge of any philosophical discussion of this question, I present this argument, and will now rely upon its conclusion, as I must contend in some way with Goldman's use of the term describe within his definition of truth. But before we move on, we must address a potential objection to DS. It deploys two different senses of the word describe a literal sense for sentences and a more metaphorical sense for propositions. Goldman's DS does not only speak of reality being described by sentences, but also by propositions and beliefs. Since beliefs are merely propositions believed by someone, i.e. a belief is a type of proposition, the two different types of things DS speaks of as describing reality are sentences and propositions. Let me explain. If we understand the phrase writing down in a literal sense, sentences can be the writing down, i.e. giving an account in words of reality, since a sentence is literally a set of words. In contrast, propositions cannot be a literal writing down or account in words, since a proposition is not a set of words, but a different type of thing, the meaning of a certain type of sentence. However, if we understand the word describe in a particular metaphorical sense, it becomes appropriate to speak of propositions metaphorically describing reality. When a proposition describes reality, the proposition indeed gives an account of reality, but it gives this account not in words, but in the content, i.e. the meaning, of a sentence full of words. As long as we bear in mind that these two different senses of the word describe are in play, we are fine to speak of both sentences and propositions describing reality. 6.3.1.2 Fit Now we can turn to the second question about the concepts DS deploys, that concerning the concept of fit. It is the deployment of the concept of fit that makes this a version of the correspondence theory of truth, since the relation of fit between two things is a way in which two things can be said to correspond. So, to turn to our question, what does it mean for a proposition to fit reality? This is entirely a question for other disciplines beside epistemology, such as the theory of meaning, the theory of language, or linguistics.
we can safely delegate this question to such disciplines. I believe it means that epistemology has done its job in this matter to the utmost, it has analyzed the concepts in question down to their most basic possible form, and succeeded at leaving the only mysteries in them being the mysteries of how language works at describing and thus representing reality. 6.3.1.3 Reality The third and final conceptual question DS provokes is, what do we mean by reality? In our speech, we ask, meaningfully, questions like the following, are black holes are real? Is God real? Are numbers real? Are absolute moral truths real? In all these questions, are we referring to the same reality? The way we use the concept of reality in speech implies that it has different parts or portions. Within reality as a whole, we certainly do refer to the natural part, discussing for example how the universe began, and what natural forces and entities it contains. But we also refer to, and debate the existence of, a supernatural part of reality. For most contemporary religions, if God is real, then he makes his home in the supernatural part of reality as a whole. Thus, the concept, reality, includes both a natural part, and a supernatural part, regardless of whether the concept of a supernatural part of reality corresponds to anything outside of human imagination. Note that even atheists very rely upon the concept of a supernatural part of reality, if only to argue that it does not correspond to anything outside of human imagination. We also speak as though reality has one or more abstract parts. The question of whether numbers are real is seen by some philosophers of mathematics as concerning whether the numbers we use in speech correspond to an abstract part of reality. And it is possible to ask whether this abstract part of reality is actually a subset of the natural part of reality, or exists somehow separately from it, with some associating this position with Plato and his theory of ideal forms. It is not necessary for our purposes at this time to articulate a complete theory of reality, since I plan to do this in Book 2 of this series. For now, is enough to posit a common-sense definition of reality that will enable our new definition of truth, DSR, to cover all the types of propositions we use as human beings, though I will take a moment to provide a sketch of how, in Book 2, I plan to defend my common-sense definition. Let me now posit the definition of the concept of reality implied in the preceding discussion, namely, that the concept of reality includes natural, supernatural, and abstract parts. In Book 2 of this series, I plan to argue that, concerning the natural part of reality, the philosopher can and must delegate the task of defining it to the discipline of physics, since this part of reality is amenable to empirical investigation and the task of investigating and theorizing about it belongs to physics. Concerning the abstract part of reality, I plan to argue that it is actually a subpart of the natural. Within thesis BV1 of the basic view of knowledge, I have assumed a conceptual hierarchy in which mathematical and conceptual knowledge can both be categorized as types of abstract knowledge, and I am here using the concept of an abstract part of reality in a manner consistent with that earlier hierarchy of concepts. Thus, my definition of the basic view implies that there are two different subparts, or two different types of things, within the abstract part of reality, the mathematical part of reality, with its mathematical entities, and the conceptual part of reality, with its conceptual entities. 
With regard to mathematical entities, I will argue, in Book 2, that they are human-constructed models that are useful in understanding and affecting the physical realm to the extent that they resemble aspects of physical reality. With regard to conceptual entities, I will argue that they are members of human-constructed systems of linguistic meaning-making that are useful to we humans' interaction with each other and with our shared physical realm, to the extent that they allow us to efficiently think about and communicate about physical world entities and experiences, including by drawing useful distinctions among these entities and experiences. As for a supernatural part of reality, constructing our concept of reality, as we have done thus far gives it the conceptual room to talk and think about the potential for propositions about supernatural entities, which we so often want to discuss, to either fit with a supernatural part of reality or not. It thus gives us a manner of speaking about the truth or falsity of supernatural realm-related propositions that is an extension of our everyday experience-based understanding of the truth or falsity of physical realm-related propositions. This indeed seems to me a plausible explanation for how our human minds understand how supernatural realm propositions can be true or false, by analogy to how physical realm propositions can be so, i.e. via the most common-sense kind of theory of truth, a correspondence theory, and via the best such theory we can devise, which I have argued is one that employs the concept of reality as its truth-maker. If we accept a definition of reality that includes all three parts, I believe it will be sufficient to handle all the types of knowledge we have included within the scope of the present book series. First, it can handle the present book 1's project to devise a theory of knowledge compatible with the basic view, since it can handle both worldly entities and the abstract entities of mathematics and language, i.e. all the types of entities mentioned in BV1, the first thesis of the basic view. Second, I believe it will allow us, in book 3 of this series, to explore whether this theory of knowledge can be extended to include religious knowledge and moral knowledge. But my argument showing how such a three-part definition of reality will help us explore the potential for religious and moral knowledge will have to wait for book 3. It should be noted Goldman himself, in defending his use of the concept of reality, in his correspondence theory of truth, DS, points out how it can easily and comfortably be defined in the kind of broad way I have just adopted, so as to accommodate all these different types of entities of which we try to attain knowledge. He says, Indeed, it is not entirely clear that the correspondence theory requires a unique category of objects to serve as truth-makers. Perhaps some propositions are made true by concrete events, whereas other propositions are made true by relations among abstract entities. As long as anything that makes a proposition true is part of reality, construed as broadly as possible, this fits with correspondence theory as formulated by D.S. Goldman thus points out the possibility of construing reality in a maximally broad sense that allows it to function as a truth-maker within a correspondence theory of truth that accommodates the different kinds of entities we humans deploy in the propositions about which we seek the truth. Just as did Goldman, I will content myself for the purposes of this book to point out this apt possibility of construing the concept of reality in this maximally broad sense. This possibility that allows us to move forward without being stopped by an accusation that reality is too restrictive a concept to deploy in our truth-maker to accommodate all the types of knowledge we are seeking to justify in the basic view of knowledge and indeed within the standard view, with its talk of religious and moral knowledge as well. 
So much for our provisional sketch of a definition of reality. Now we must turn to the flaws with DS that I mentioned earlier. But this will require first laying some groundwork. 6.3.2 Structure of a Correspondence Theory, Truth-Bearer, Truth-Maker, Relation Before I can explain the two flaws with DS, involving its truth-bearers and truth-makers, I must of course explain what I mean by the concepts of a truth-bearer and a truth-maker. We introduced the concept of a truth-bearer in the previous chapter, in which we discussed belief and propositions. But we didn't fully explain this concept of a truth-bearer. We said that propositions are the truth-bearers, the bearers of the truth-related properties, truth and falsity, but we could benefit from further clarifying this concept of a truth-bearer by seeing it deployed in another setting. And now we are introducing an entirely novel concept, that of a truth-maker. Luckily, there is a way to explain both, while also clarifying the concept of a correspondence theory of truth. Explaining the structure of correspondence theories of truth will clarify the concepts of a truth-bearer and a truth-maker, since these are essential components in such theories. We can use DS to illustrate how all correspondence theories of truth include a key condition that the truth-bearer must satisfy, in order to possess the truth property, in order to qualify as being true. I am referring to what I will call the correspondence condition. The correspondence condition has three key components, a truth-bearer, a truth-maker, and some kind of correspondence-like relation between the two. For correspondence theories, truth is defined as a property possessed by the truth-bearer if and only if the truth-bearer corresponds in some specific way with the truth-maker. Let us discuss each of these three components in turn. First is the concept of a truth-bearer. A truth-bearer is something that can be true. In DS this is the content, i.e. the meaning, of item X, where X can be a proposition, a sentence, or a belief. The etc. leaves open the possibility that other types of things could also be truth-bearers, but we will discuss only the three item types he has specifically listed. So, to DS, the truth-bearer can be the meaning of a proposition, the meaning of a sentence, or the meaning of a belief. Second is the concept of a truth-maker. A truth-maker is something that makes the truth-bearer true, when the truth-bearer is appropriately related to the truth-maker. In DS the truth-maker is reality. Third is the correspondence-like relation between the truth-bearer and the truth-maker. In DS the relation of fit is used. Altogether, this means that for DS, a proposition is true when the truth-bearer, the meaning of a proposition, sentence, or belief, fits the truth-maker, reality. As we mentioned above, more traditional versions of the correspondence theory often deployed the concept of facts as truth-maker. For example, Feldman suggested such a correspondence theory of truth. But the use of facts as the truth-makers has proven to be highly problematic. The nature of a fact is far more controversial than the nature of reality, and I suspect the only way to elucidate the concept of a fact is to ultimately refer to reality. I'll take a moment now to explain. I would define a fact simply as a true proposition. And so to say, a proposition is true if it corresponds to the facts, is to say, a proposition is true if it corresponds to a member of the set of all true propositions. 
In other words, a proposition is true if it belongs to the set of all true propositions. We have thus exposed our proposed theory of truth that deploys the concept of the facts to involve circular reasoning, invalidating this kind of theory of truth. Instead, truth should be defined with reference to reality, as I suggest in this chapter, and facts with reference to truth. In this way we demystify both the concept of truth and the concept of a fact. In other words, the concept of reality is more fundamental than the concept of a fact, and thus is a better truth-maker. 6.3.3 Getting the Truth-Bearers Right, Propositions versus Sentences Goldman's definition of truth, DS, lists as its potential truth-bearers sentences, propositions, and beliefs. But these are disparate types of things. A belief is a proposition that happens to be believed by someone. So, propositions and beliefs are the same type of thing. But sentences are different, since a proposition is the meaning of a certain kind of sentence, as we saw. This disparity causes two problems in Goldman's definition. First, he applies the property true to both kinds of item. But a sentence cannot be true or false, since it is just a string of words. Only the content, i.e. the meaning, of a certain kind of sentence can be true or false. That is, only propositions, and thus beliefs, can be true or false. Only propositions, and by extension, beliefs, can be truth-bearers. Sentences cannot be truth-bearers. The second problem is that Goldman provides as a criterion for X being true that X's content must fit reality. But if X can be a proposition, then this prompts the question, what is the content, the meaning, of a proposition? While this question itself is not absurd, I do not believe it was Goldman's intention to be placing this criterion on the content of propositions, but rather only on the content of sentences, I believe he included the word content only to shift from sentences to propositions. Otherwise, the first half of DS would refer to something different from the second half. That which must be descriptively successful would be different from that which must fit reality. This does not seem right. Let us see if we can revise Goldman's definition to align with the understanding of the nature of propositions, sentences, and beliefs we articulated earlier. There are sentences whose content, i.e. meaning, can in some sense fit reality, without being a sentence that is a candidate for being true. For example, the imperative sentence, go to the store, uttered by a mother to her daughter who then obeys the command and goes to the store will fit reality in the sense that the command winds up being obeyed. But we don't say that the sentence was true. The only sentences that are candidates for being true are those that purport to describe reality, i.e. descriptions, and of these, only those descriptions that are successful are true. As discussed in this book series I do not apply the terms true or knowledge to sentences, but only to the meaning, that is, the content, of a certain kind of sentence, i.e. a declarative sentence. And all propositions, by definition, purport to describe reality, since a proposition is the meaning of a declarative, and thus a descriptive, sentence. 6.3. For getting the truth-makers right, parts of reality. The second flaw in DS concerns the truth-makers it deploys. As a correspondence theory, Goldman's DS theory includes a correspondence condition, 
which we discussed above to illustrate the nature of correspondence conditions. But upon examination, we notice that DS also includes another condition. The additional condition is that the truth-bearer must purport to describe the truth-maker. Let us call this the description condition. Not only must the truth-bearer fit reality, it must also purport to describe reality. Goldman states that this additional criterion is essential, in order to distinguish his version of correspondence theory from epistemic and instrumentalist theories of truth, since all three can be construed as defining truth as correspondence between a truth-bearer or belief in one and a certain type of reality-based truth-maker. What he fails to build into DS is the fact that in order to draw this distinction we must specify that both conditions refer to the same part of reality. Reality is a very large and diverse place, with many parts or aspects. At least almost always, truth-bearers are making declarations only about some parts of reality and relationships between them. The proposition P, the cup is on the table, is referring only to the parts of reality that are the e-specific cup in question, the specific table in question, and the real-world spatial relationship between the two, e.g. whether one is directly supporting the weight of the other. In DS's description condition, the truth-maker is reality, yes, but only the parts of reality made up of the cup, the table, and the way they are actually related to one another, spatially. Meanwhile, in DS's correspondence condition, the truth-maker is also reality, but this truth-maker must be the same set of parts of reality, and their relations, in order to be a correspondence theory of truth. Let me show why this is. We need to understand what distinguishes correspondence theories from epistemic and from instrumentalist theories since, as I just said, all three can be construed as defining truth as correspondence between a truth-bearer and a certain type of reality-based truth-maker. Note that for the purposes of this comparison I am presuming that the only type of thing that can be a truth-bearer is a proposition, for the reasons I provided earlier. Here are the truth-makers for propositions, i.e. our truth-bearers, under the following theories. And in this discussion, I will adopt my earlier habit of referring to the subject person who believes a proposition as S. For Goldman's correspondence theory, the truth-makers are the parts of reality that make the proposition descriptively successful. In other words, the truth-makers are the parts of reality referred to within the description, i.e. within the proposition. This contrasts with epistemic theories, in which the truth-makers are the parts of reality that make it justified for S to believe that the proposition is descriptively successful. What parts of reality are these? These are the mental states or processes of S that constitute S's justification for the proposition. It also contrasts with instrumentalist theories, in which the truth-makers are the parts of reality that make belief in the proposition, by S or by other persons, as stipulated by the specific instrumentalist theory, useful for S. These parts of reality include S's preferences and how the relevant persons are influenced or affected by their belief in the proposition. All this means that we will have to revise DS to specify that it must be the same parts of reality that are the truth-makers within its correspondence condition and its description condition. I thus present a revised version of his theory, which I will call descriptive success, revised DSR which teases apart discussion of the incompatible object types, sentences versus propositions and beliefs. 
DSR. The content of a sentence X is true if and only if X is descriptively successful, that is, X purports to describe certain parts of reality, and its content fits those parts of reality that X purports to describe. Put differently, a proposition P is true if and only if P is descriptively successful, that is, P fits the parts of reality that it purports to describe. I intend the two articulations of DSR, i.e. the two paragraphs within the definition, to have the same content, that is, the same meaning. Of course, as discussed earlier, this implies that the two parts are employing two different senses of the word describe. When the first part speaks of a sentence successfully describing parts of reality, it means a literal writing down, or giving an account in words of those parts of reality. When the second part of DSR speaks of a proposition successfully describing parts of reality, it means a metaphorical writing down of those parts of reality. It means giving an account of those parts of reality, not in words, but in the content, i.e. the meaning of words. So be it, different senses noted. Now we can compare this correspondence theory of truth with prototypical versions of the other theories of truth that also can be construed as employing reality-based truth-makers, epistemic, and instrumentalist theories. Here are my articulations of those theories, construed as involving reality-based truth-makers, so that we can compare them with our correspondence theory, which also involves reality-based truth-makers. Epistemic-slash-verificationist a proposition P is true if and only if P purports to describe certain parts of reality, and P fits certain other parts of reality, namely, the real mental states that are the conclusions of S's reasoning process about whether the proposition is descriptively successful. Instrumentalist, a proposition P is true if and only if P purports to describe certain parts of reality, and the effect on S of believing P fits certain other parts of reality, namely, the mental states that are S's goals. When we examine these two theories, we see that, unlike for DSR, the parts of reality that the proposition involved purports to describe are different from the parts of reality that the truthmaker must fit with. This comparison makes it clear that in DSR, we have defined the truthmakers deployed in the correspondence theory's correspondence and description conditions, so as to distinguish the correspondence theory from epistemic and instrumentalist theories of truth. Thus, in DSR, we have thus solved the key flaw with our original articulation, DS. The remaining key concepts in DSR are those of description, reality, and fit. But as we concluded with DS, these are very basic concepts. Therefore, I will be satisfied that our definition has succeeded at making genuine progress at explicating the nature of truth. Of course, there is likely some further work to do in exploring the concepts of parts of reality and the relationships between them. But I do not anticipate these being too troublesome, as it seems to me that every description, i.e. every declarative sentence, makes explicit which parts of reality and which relations between them it is referring to. So I will satisfy myself with DSR as a whole. At this point, we seem to have a good definition of truth that we can apply whenever we need to interpret the word true in a sentence. This means that in this and the previous chapter, we've covered all three of the key concepts deployed within the traditional analysis of knowledge. Now we're ready to evaluate the tack. 
Is it good enough to serve as the, i.e. the correct, analysis of knowledge? And that completes our episode's reading from my 2019 book, Knowledge by Acceptance, 2nd Edition. I hope you found it interesting. For more information, including links to Amazon, from which you can buy the ebook or the paperback, see my website, jamescraft.org. And that's graph spelled G-R-A-F. All the best.